0: Welcome to Pedagogue, a podcast about teachers talking writing. I'm your host, Shane Wood. In this episode, I talk with Tara Wood about disability studies, ableism, crip time, and how to center disability studies in writing classrooms and programs. Tara Wood is an assistant professor of English and writing program administrator at the University of Northern Colorado, where she teaches courses in rhetoric, composition, and pedagogy. Her research focuses on disability, Accessibility, and Inclusive Writing Pedagogies. She is the current co-chair of the Committee on Disability Issues in College Composition. I want to start by reading a passage from Tara's 2017 article in College Composition and Communication titled, Cripping Time in the College Composition Classroom. It's a phenomenal qualitative study on the experiences of students with disabilities in the writing classroom. Here's the passage, quote, Most of the accommodations for disabled students in higher education are heavily tied to test-taking, extended time on exams and reduced distraction environments, for example. If not directly tied to test-taking, common accommodations are designed for lecture-based classrooms, note-takers, carbon copy paper, and the like. In discussion and process-based writing classrooms, most... Of these accessibility measures do not necessarily apply." End quote. In this article, Tara critiques normative conceptions of time and offers the concept of crypt time. This episode involves conversations on ableism and normative concepts of time, as well as using crypt time as an alternative pedagogical framework for the writing classroom. Tara, thanks so much for joining us. Let's start with a larger question before getting into crypt Time as an alternative pedagogical framework. How do you define ableism?
1: Okay, so I agree. That's a really, um, it's a big one, just like any of the big discriminatory isms. Um, but I think it's useful or has been useful for me in my own experience and in my own scholarship to think about it as sort of two-pronged. It can either be social prejudice, attitudinal um, kind of prejudiced, uh, aimed at people with various disabilities, and it can also be a discriminatory act, something that is done too in a discriminatory way people with various psychiatric, cognitive, mental, intellectual, physical disabilities. And the flip side of that, or thinking about it in a sort of inverted way, is also that ableism is a sort of privileging of the able body or an attitude about the primacy and ultimate good of the able-bodied for all.
0: What are some commonplace ableist assumptions about writing?
1: Yeah, so I think the one that I've tackled the most in my own work is the idea that writing takes place in a normative time construct. Um, The idea that people um, produce at certain intervals that are predictable and quote-unquote normal, um, and that that has a tendency to enable or foster ableist Um, approaches to teaching writing or thinking about writing because you make assumptions about what the brain not only does but should do and what's expected and normal in terms of producing text. I think another ableist idea about writing is the labor involved, which of course is related to time, but it's the amount, our assumptions or people's assumptions about the amount of labor that goes into the production of a text, for example. A really concrete example of this, and of course it's hard to think about anything except in the teaching of writing but a concrete example is a student swaps a paper with another student right very common practice in, in writing classrooms and one student says oh you must have just done this like at the last minute me too like when they look at another student's paper because maybe it's not fully fleshed out there's a lot of error that's visible to their partner and when in reality it took that student hours and hours to produce that piece of content, right? So this sort of like, these assumptions that we have about what people can produce and how much labor it takes to produce whatever is being asked of them.
0: So how do you deconstruct that normative concept of time?
1: Yeah. So I think one of the um, biggest ways to try and deconstruct that, it's, it's so, I mean, the idea of a commonplace is that it's common, right? It's so prevalent you don't notice it anymore. So I think one very concrete way to try and address it, deconstruct it, is to just talk about it in a sustained way throughout your interactions with other people, whether that's in a classroom or, some, or a workplace environment, to just be saying out loud, this is going to take some people longer than others. Or if you ever have what people might call like a free write or any kind of spontaneous writing activity to always say it's okay if you don't finish because people think at different paces and that's cool. Right. So it's just these sort of little subtle ways that in my own teaching practice, I just try to hit all the time as my own way of trying to combat these ideas about time and writing normalcy.
0: What are some commonplace ableist assumptions about teaching?
1: Yeah, so I think the biggest one in connecting teaching and disability is the idea that disability is something we should fix, Um, that it's something we should try to address, it's something we should try to cure, it's something we should help the student get rid of or eradicate or help them get a little closer to the the normal producing student that's for me that's the biggest one it's the number one thing for example i get a lot of people that want to talk to me at my own institution and other institutions about disability because of my work right and very very common anecdote is always about a troublesome experience they've had with a disabled student right it's just like anecdotal example of a student and how they can many times fix that student. And that sounds super critical. I have been in that position myself to share an anecdote like that, so I don't mean it as judgy as as it might sound, but I do think it's because of that rooted commonplace. And often with good intentions, you know, we wanna be able to fix whatever the issue is. But if if we start to connect disability with identity, and we allow disability to be something that people can claim, and something that people can claim with pride, then this disruption happens where all of a sudden we have to like rethink, oh well what does it mean if I'm attempting to fix this if it's associated with their identity? And of course there are all sorts of intersectional parallels to that. If you think about something like African-American students and um, like Vershawn Ashanti Young's work and code meshing and all of these things, there's lots of parallels to how these commonplace assumptions can impact students in ways that diminish components of their identity. And I think in some ways disability is, it's an area that needs to be explored in that vein. Like what does it mean for us to think about a student with a disability claiming their disability identity in a writing classroom? And how does that play out in the writing itself? How do we grade it? How do we assess it? How do we teach to that? It's a really complicated, but super exciting and important topic for me.
0: As mentioned earlier, you problematize normative conceptions of time and production in your article, Cripping Time, in the College Composition Classroom. You write about how, when left unexamined, these normative conceptions and assumptions privilege specific bodies. Do you mind talking more about the concept of crip time as an alternative pedagogical framework?
1: Yeah, so I think we've touched on this a little bit, but... Uh, Crip time is a concept that has emerged from uh, disability communities and has since been leveraged by disability theorists to challenge certain ableist ideologies in a wide, wide range of disciplines. Um, For me, um, I usually draw on Irving Zola's definition, which is a flexible approach to time. seems really simple, um, but it's... Uh, the idea that people will do things at different times, that people will approach a given task at different time intervals—it's just thinking about time in a non-linear way. Um, yesterday, when I was reading through your questions, um, I was like, "Oh, I'm gonna, I'm gonna come up with like a really good metaphor <laughs> for uh, crip time." And here's what I got. I even wrote this one down in pre- in preparing. If normative time were like a thing, normative time would be like a uncooked spaghetti noodle, right? It's like straight, it's firm, goes from one end to the other. And if crip time were a thing, it would be like a ball of yarn. Like maybe we pull a little bit off. It's like all, it's all loose. It's not never ending necessarily, but it's definitely not an uncooked spaghetti noodle. But that's the metaphor you get. And I do think it gets to that idea of, of flexibility and even the rigidity right of this idea of normative time which most people can't deal with you know able or disabled there's this great piece um there's a collection about uh, bipolar disorder it's an edited collection about bipolar disorder um, edited by horton and there's a piece in there about labor and tenure clocks and the production even now that graduate students are expected to do and that everything has to happen on this completely unachievable and exhausting spaghetti noodle like it all has to happen like this and that if you can't meet it what happens it it breaks something that gets disrupted you lose traction whatever so crip time for me is um, not only a concept but it's also a sort of deliberate theoretical acknowledgement that there are problems with normative constructions of time If you think back to my comment about the two students swapping papers, like one hour of time might mean something really, really different for one person than for another, right? So it gets a little bit complicated, you know, like how how can you determine where that bar gets set if you're thinking about it in terms of minutes? Because... One minute for one person is so different for another person and particularly for students with disabilities.
0: Can you talk about other strategies and practices like syllabus accessibility statements that can center disability studies in the classroom?
1: So I can tell you um, right now I am, um, so I'm a writing program administrator at my university and my current work has been really trying to theorize access programmatically. So I think we now have, you know, since 99, we've had this like massive outpouring of a lot of incredible scholarship that's really focused on the teaching space and disability and access and inclusivity. We have a really robust body of scholarship at that nexus of disability studies and retcom. But I feel like one thing that is, that needs more uh, attention Is how can WPAs and people that are administrating think about access programmatically? And to give you a couple concrete examples of how I'm starting to try and think about that. One is with deliberate professional development attending to disability and inclusivity in writing classrooms offered in the writing program, not from teaching and learning centers, which are also super valuable, but I also think it's really important for us in writing studies to claim what that, what does that mean in the context, the specific context of a writing classroom, so to develop that. Another example is mandatory reporting in Title IX, which is a a practice that has been challenged by the AAUP, the idea that if a student discloses anything to us, we are mandated by the university to report that according to Title IX. And disability theory can really offer a critical lens to that. The idea that that student's story is no longer their own, their disclosure becomes my story to then report. So those are just a couple little examples of how I think one of the ways forward for that nexus of disability studies and retcom is to add on the programmatic thinking to to the classroom thinking how can we think like stretch it out even even bigger and of course there are all sorts of ways to do that through um curricula drawing on the body of scholarship that's theorized accessible writing pedagogies
0: what work has influenced your own ideas and understandings of disability studies in the writing classroom or program Maybe you could offer some resources or materials you would recommend to other teachers.
1: Um, certainly, Dolmage's work has probably been more influential on not only my scholarship, but my, my teaching practice, um, particularly his book, Disability Rhetoric. Um, that was published right after I finished my dissertation study it was just a profound it had a profound effect on me to really understand the generative potential of disability was a massive shift and this is after for me this was after thinking and writing about disability for for many years um, and then when I encountered that book I feel like it was really a turning point for me where I felt like that that even the word there word generative like this can be this positive isn't the right word but generative I feel like is better and that's Dolmage's word Um, That was a big, important moment for for my scholarship. And a a quick example of how that impacted me is my dissertation study. I had interviewed uh, 35 students with disabilities and asked them about their experiences with access and writing classrooms. And in the study's original design, I was hoping to rethink accommodations. Like how can we better craft more appropriate accommodations in the classroom? But I was like, I finished up collecting all these interviews. I was in the transcription stage where I'm like typing all this stuff up and I was reading disability rhetoric and I was like, oh my God, like, I've done this all wrong. Like i have not, I'm trying to, I'm in the fix it mode, right? I was like, how, how can I make this better? How can I fix this stuff going on in writing classrooms? And, I, and when I encountered his book, it really shifted to like, oh, I should be thinking about um, what we're doing wrong, <laughs> right? Like how can, how, what do we need to change? That's how this needs to shift. So it was a really fundamental piece for me. The second one I'll just mention quickly is um, Melanie Yurgos a uh, recent book authoring autism oh my gosh if there's any way you can give this a plug in there it's it's such an amazing book you'll read it so many times because it's so richly layered and in terms of future directions i also think that's her work is such a fantastic example of how disability will will force a shift a fundamental shift in how we think about
0: rhetoric Thanks, Tara, and thank you, pedagogue listeners and followers. Until next time.